Alright everyone, welcome back to the Didactic Mind podcast. I am your host, Didact, and this is episode 48, One Little Victory. A very warm welcome, as always, to all of my faithful SoundCloud subscribers, all of my loyal readers from the blog. If you are not already subscribed to um, the podcast, please make sure you hit that uh, like and subscribe button and uh, make sure you spread the word. Uh, for those of you who are looking to subscribe to posts from the blog, uh, I know I said I would try to get uh, subscriptions and some uh, additional changes to the blog done by today. Uh, it's been a pretty busy week for a number of reasons. Uh, spent a lot of time in the garden, quite literally in the garden, um, pulling out a, a massive thorn bush, actually two massive thorn bushes, uh, pruning the the uh, the nastiness with uh, a pair of secateurs. Um, very useful in implements, by the way. If you if you don't have a, a pair of those, make sure you get some because they are very useful for um, cutting through uh, nasty things that you don't want in your garden. As for why I've taken up gardening, well, that's another story. Uh, it's not normally a hobby of mine. But uh, at any rate, uh, a couple of things to point out. Uh, as always, if you want to support my work, head over to superbshaving.com and uh, buy some of the products listed there. Um, I know it's been a while since I've updated the site. Uh, I should have a new post coming up soon, I hope. Uh, just got up, I've just been busy with a lot of stuff. And uh, as always, make sure you uh, follow through on my Amazon links posted in, um, in this podcast and on my website, uh, because that will lead you to an Amazon affiliate page where if you buy any of the products, I get a commission, which is always nice. Uh, there are plans for more websites to come. There should be Didactic Strength, which um, I hope to have up and running in the next couple of months, uh, depending on how time permits. And there's another site, which I've been planning for a long time now, which is more dedicated to travel and uh, sort of uh, Eastern European type adventures, which uh, of which I know quite a bit by now, because I've spent quite a lot of my time in Eastern Europe. Uh, over the last few years. So all of that is to come. Uh, <clears throat> it's just a matter of finding literally the time to do it and the ability to just sit down and knock out all of these things. Uh, my life is going to get pretty busy uh, towards the end of the year, actually, for a number of reasons. And uh, I, may I may or may not announce why later on, but uh, I hope to be moving on from where I am right now to where I am not right now. I know that is delightfully vague, but uh, I'll get to it later. In terms of uh, the course that was on sale for some time, that was uh, the Limitless Living course, that is uh, shuttered for now. So many thanks to all those, uh, I think there were two of my readers who bought into it. Uh, many thanks to you for doing so. I really appreciate that um, the funds have uh, contributed uh, nicely to my bank account, which was uh, useful. And um, I would really appreciate it if you would uh, stop by, leave a comment, or send me an email, domainquery at didacticmind.com. Domain query is all one word, at didacticmind.com. Again, one word. And um, let me know what you thought of it. I, I would love to know what you thought of the content, what you thought of the layout, the presentation. Kyle and I are always looking to tweak uh, what we have offered, 
and we would really appreciate your feedback and so please um, let us know uh, how you liked it whether you think there are things that could be improved what you want to see added on because we are planning on um, expanding the offering I'll just put it that way we are planning on doing some things with the existing content because we'd like to uh, analyze how things went and uh, come back with something even better for a future venture so uh, that is uh, that would be much appreciated if you were one of the two that, uh, that that bought into the course please let me know what you thought of it uh, either via email or via public comment um, email is probably best uh, if you let me be very clear though if you send an email to me um, the chances are pretty high we will use the content of that email in the marketing pages for future uh, offerings so just be aware that you know what you send me I will probably use in public um, I will of course expunge any personal details if if there are any to be expunged and I'm happy to give uh, whoever sent that review final say over the public appearance of that review. Uh, I do believe in fiercely guarding the privacy of my readers. But that being said, uh, by all means, please send, a, send me, send us some feedback. We'd really appreciate it. Um, and that's about all in terms of news, I believe. Uh, so... I'm going to get onto the uh, the main thrust of this podcast, and I want to talk about some good news, or I, at least I want to give people some hope and optimism. Uh, this is we are operating in some very very strange times, and 2020 is going to be remembered as the year from hell for a lot of us. But despite all of the negativity and all of the uh, fear and all of the madness and the massive overreaches of government power and the lockdowns, the shutdowns, the, the, the stupidity, the insanity, um, and despite the massive disruptions that have been introduced into all of our lives, despite the crippling economic impact of everything, there have unquestionably been some good things that have come out of this year. And I think we're going to see more of that as time goes on. Uh, and I wanted to give people, uh, my listeners especially, some reason for cheer, some reason for optimism. Uh, because I am as guilty as anyone else of being a bit negative. Uh, on my blog, in my writings, in my podcast sometimes, you may feel as though I'm a bit despondent about everything. And that's simply not the case, actually. I am very much an optimist about the future, even though my own life is basically a dumpster fire. Um, I, I look to the future with great hope and great optimism, precisely because of my Christian faith, and because that faith explains the way the world works in a way that no other can. There's nothing else that explains why evil exists, why there is material evil in the world, and how to solve the problem of real material evil. The Christian worldview 
is easily the most black-pilled out of all of them. Uh, the Stoics, uh, with whom the Christians share a great deal of affinity and a great deal of philosophical um, ground, understand that evil exists and can quantify it and can measure it and can say this is evil. These, these qualities are virtuous, these things are noble, these ideals we strive to meet, but we never will, and anything that conflicts with these idealizations of man, of our relationship with the universe, in fact Stoicism does not explicitly incorporate a deity, a god. It is equally compatible with a monotheistic, a polytheistic, and an atheistic view of creation. There's no problem with Stoicism in these respects. Stoicism is capable of identifying the problem. It is capable of measuring the problem. It is capable of uh, tracking the problem. It is not capable of solving the problem. The problem of evil cannot be solved by a grin and bear it strategy, because that's what Stoicism is. It basically just says, do not try to change that which cannot be changed. Uh, be virtuous, be noble, be strong, be tough, be resilient. Uh, take the long view of things. Do not attempt to uh, change what you cannot change, because you won't be able to. You'll fight a losing battle, and you'll destroy yourself in the process. And that is true. That is, that is the literal truth. But that's not a winning strategy. That's just a, a strategy that says, you know, carry on regardless. And that's fine. I mean, that is, it is a valid way to live life. I don't object to that. Um, I do think, however, that people deserve hope. And Stoicism offers a dignified way to go through life, uh, but it doesn't really offer hope. For a better future. Not really. Christianity does. Christianity says that the world is, this world is not what it was meant to be. This world was always meant to be something greater. It was something greater in the prelapsarian period, as it were, in the Garden of Eden. Um, the world that we are surrounded by is broken and ruined because of man's rebellion against God. And it's astonishing how much meaning and how much uh, theology, how much uh, philosophy is to be found in literally two chapters of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. Um, the, the fall of man is, is you know, it's a, just a, it's a handful of passages. Um, one of the reasons, by the way, that you know why the Bible is true is precisely because of the beauty and economy of the verses. It's not the only reason, it's not even a particularly strong reason, because there are much more compelling reasons why the Bible is true. Um, but in general, truths are best expressed in compact form. Uh, an ounce of truth is enough to destroy a ton of lies, always. And it is in that spirit that we look at the Christian worldview and we say, this world is not what it was meant to be. It is ruled over by evil. It is controlled by evil. The prince of this world controls um, 
everything we do or everything we see around us. All of the suffering and the misery and the pain and the horror that we see every single day. This is the result of man's rebellion against God. It is the result of our exercise of free will, contrary to the will of God. It is the result of our refusal, our obstinate, stubborn refusal to bend the knee and bow the head and accept God as sovereign over us. And that is a very hopeless worldview. It says, we brought this on ourselves. But the Christian worldview also offers great hope. Because it says, a man came into this world. God became flesh. He sent his own beloved son to us. That man took our sins upon himself to restore a connection between us and the Lord, which could not be restored before. Because God cannot stand to be around sin. He cannot be in this world. It is a sinful, broken, fallen world. So he cannot be here with us. He sent his only son to us, and we murdered him. We murdered him. We spilled his blood upon the earth. And despite that, despite everything we've done wrong, that man died for us. Not just, I mean, not us in an abstract sense. You and me. He died for you. He died for me. That's astonishing. And if that doesn't give you hope that nobility and sacrifice and decency will prevail in the end, I don't know what could. I don't know how you could read the story of Jesus Christ and the way that he just completely changed the lives of so many people and not be inspired. Um, I certainly was, even as, as, as an atheist uh, and eventually as an agnostic. I mean, I refuted the existence of Christ. Boy, was I an idiot. Um, because the existence of Jesus uh, is the single best attested fact of all of human history. There's nobody else that we can be more certain existed than that man, uh, including you. I mean, if you're listening to this, I have more certainty that Jesus existed than I do that you exist right now. And you should have more certainty that Jesus existed than that I exist right now, even though you're listening to me. So... Um, why is it, then, that we just seem to see so much evil around us and it just wears us down? Well, the best expression I've seen of it probably comes from Tolkien's work, uh, the man I call the master, because you know, Tolkien, being a linguist from Oxford, um, and a staunch Catholic, uh, he wasn't a writer, and yet he created the, the greatest fantasy uh, series of all time. Nobody's ever done it better. Uh, many have tried, Most, almost everybody has failed. The reason why he was able to do it so well is because he understood better than anybody else exactly how the fight against evil goes. And the Lord of the Rings reflects that very, very accurately. The fight against evil is one long, long, long series of defeats punctuated by epic victories. The greatest of these epic victories in our lives, in our, in our existence, was and remains and will always be the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because in that one moment, the gates of hell were smashed down and the defeat of our enemy was guaranteed. 
Now, looking at our modern world, we have many little victories that have come up over and over again. And in our pain, in our suffering, in our blindness, we don't acknowledge them. But they are there, and they are accumulating. You need to understand, if you are a man of faith, or a woman of faith, not to discriminate, um, that the victory has already been secured. We know how the story ends. We don't know how the story unfolds, but we know how it ends. It ends with Jesus returning, this, the, the Lamb of God returning, with Satan being uh, cast down and thrown into a lake of fire, uh, f with the Lord reigning over this earth for a thousand years, with many of the curses that we have been afflicted with since Genesis falling away, and with a radically different view of the world than what we have today. This life is just stage one, basically. If you look at it in terms of video games, this life is just one stage. We die, we go to the next stage. Dying is not fun. Dying, you know, all of us are going to die alone and probably in great pain, uh, unless we're very, very lucky. Um, when you get to that next stage, you're prepared for the next thing in life. But be under no illusions as to whether or not your life matters now, because it does. You play a purpose and a role in the current environment. You are being used, whether you believe it or not, to achieve certain ends, either by the powers and principalities that rule this world, as detailed in Ephesians 6.12, go read it, um, it explains exactly who we're fighting against, or by our Father in Heaven, who uses us to fight against that evil and to restore the kingdom that He has always wanted us to have. I'll give you two examples from our current environment which should explain why there is room for great hope and great optimism. I firmly believe now, as a matter of faith, from what I have seen over the last nine months, that two of the greatest lies, and therefore two of the greatest uh, sources of human misery in existence today will be destroyed within our lifetimes. What are those two sources? The first is Islam, and the second is the Communist Party of China. Let me explain why I think that these two, uh, these two fonts of evil are due for a reckoning. With Islam, as if you've been listening to uh, my podcasts for the last uh, six weeks or so, I did a two-part podcast called One Man, One Book, in which I laid out in a very, very, extremely high-level fashion um, the case against the book, and the man of Islam. And remember, Islam is a mirror image of Christianity in almost every way. They, just like we, just like us, they resort to one man and one book. It's always one man, one book, every time. Islam is a twisted and perverted image of Christianity because whereas our man, Jesus Christ, came down, was a holy man, is sent down from heaven, born of a virgin, 
saved multitudes, healed the sick, healed the weary, gave comfort to thousands, fed uh, thousands, uh, uh, brought the, 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 the laws of God to the entire world, and uh, you know, provided the final canonization of that law to the Gentiles, and has withstood every single test that's ever been brought against him, every single historical test, every single scriptural test, every single uh, liturgical test, every single one Jesus has passed. Muhammad was merely a mortal man. Um, he probably didn't exist, actually, the way he's described in the, in, in the, in the five components of Islam, the, the Quran, the Hadith, the Tafsir, sorry, the Quran, the Hadith, the Sirah, the Tafsir, and the Tahrik, the five um, pillars of Islam. The Quran being the revelation, the Hadith being the uh, traditions, the uh, Sirah being the biography, the Tafsir being the commentaries, and the Tahrik being the, um, I, I don't even know how you put it, but like the acts of the, um, the, the, the people who surrounded him. Uh, the historical Muhammad did not exist. I mean, we can state that with a very high degree of certainty. We can state with complete certainty that the historical Jesus did exist. We can state with complete certainty that the historical apostles did exist. Uh, there's not been one bit of evidence um, that has contradicted this. Uh, there are contradictions in the writings about Jesus, obviously. There are multiple Gospels uh, used by the Gnostic sects, the, heres the, 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 the heretical sects of Christianity, which say that Jesus was not the Son of God. Well, okay. Um, that's their point of view. Uh, they're flatly contradicted by the miracles described in the Bible, by the uh, contemporary evidence, by just the, the, the change in behavior of, of early Christians, that you'll see. But yeah, that's, that's their problem. Uh, let them worry about it. Uh, that's between them and God. I have no interest in dealing with that issue. Um, most of those questions have been very soundly, resoundingly settled over the last 2,000 years. So... Uh, if you look at the Quran, if you look at the Quran versus the Bible, uh, again, mirror, twisted mirror image of the Bible. The Bible is compact. The Bible is uh, brief. The Bible is easy to read. The Bible is elegant. The Bible is truthful. The Quran, oh, yeah, and the Bible has a number of historical uh, references that have proven to be one hundred percent true. Archaeology has supported the Bible. Every time we go digging and look for evidence to refute the Bible, we inevitably end up finding evidence that supports the Bible. Um, whereas with the Quran, the Quran has some serious, huge problems. I mean, the, the most evident of them is the, well, the two, just to pick two of them, the, the two most ridiculous ones. Uh, Alexander the Great, as described in the Quran, he's not called Alexander the Great, but you know, he appears in there. Uh, Alexander the Great, built a massive wall between two enormous mountains, and he was a Muslim, by the way, um, in an area of the world that apparently he never actually was in at all. He was never recorded as being in that place. Uh, so that feat of engineering would have been far beyond anything we're capable of even today. I mean, it would have been impossible with the technology of Alexander's time. But the Quran said as happens. Okay. Uh, there's that hilarious bit where... Um, it is said that the Quran, in the Quran, that uh, Muhammad knows where the sun sets, and it sets in a, in a, 
either a hot spring or a pool of muddy water, depending on which translation you use, and uh, that's backed up in, in, in the Hadith. You know, the traditions say this is what happened, um, which is a huge problem. Obviously, that's not even remotely true. Then there's the, I mean, not to keep picking on it, but there's a, there's, there's one that, um, Dr. David Wood dismantled on his Act 17 apologetics channel, uh, quite recently, which was all about, um, how the Quran allegedly has a scientific miracle in which, uh, it describes how, uh, Allah stretches the heavens and that, that indicates that, uh, uh, that the Quran understood the miracle of the expansion of the universe long before Edwin Hubble ever confirmed it in in the early 20th century. Again, that's not true. If you actually go and look at the Arabic, if you look at the translations, you're very quickly going to realize that's not what it says. It just talks about a vast expanse or a huge firmament or a mighty uh, canopy. Uh, that would be, you know, very loosely quoting. Anyway, these are very specific examples. I'm nitpicking, but that's for a reason very specific examples in which the Quran makes claims that it just cannot back up, whereas the Bible makes claims that have been backed up repeatedly. Uh, one man, one book. One man, one book. Every single time. It's always one man, one book. Now, what has changed of late? Well, we've known for about 1,200 years, not 1,400, notice I didn't say 1,400, about 1,200 years, that Islam is a massive Christian heresy. I've explained why in my previous podcast. Here's the Cliff Notes summary. Basically, there was a man um, called uh, uh, Iyas uh, ibn something uh, uh, Kabisa ibn Kabisa al Tayyaye, um, who existed in the early seventh century, who was a commander of uh, of, of a great multitude of uh, Lakhmid Arabs. And um, he lived in north, in western Iraq, in you know the northern part of, in, 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 towards the towards the well north of of northeast actually of Mecca and Medina, basically the Hijaz region. Uh, he commanded many troops. He fought against the Sassanid Persians, who were the hated rulers and conquerors and oppressors of the Arab Lakhmid peoples. Um, he conquered many Persian territories, incorporated Persian heavy cavalry, used Nabataean merchant money and backing and political influence and power, and gave credit to the Nabataeans. I mean, at one point, he had to flee to a Nabataean um, sanctuary in order to recover and recoup his forces after losing a battle to a uh, to his Persian governor friend. Um, he former friend. Uh, he fled to the Nabataeans, gathered his money, gathered his troops, gave the Nabataeans promises of uh, power and influence, adopted parts of their religion, went back, conquered the old Persian territories because of the vacuum of power left by the war between the Persian Emperor Khosrow uh, II against uh, Augustus Heraclius in uh, the 620s and 630s, uh, turned around marched against the Byzantines, conquered much of, conquered pretty much all of the Levant, um, and much of Cappadocia and Anatolia, and uh, established the first uh, Arab empire. And it was his descendants leading up to the Umayyads um, who canonized a religion 
to cement their power. Now, all of this runs 100% contrary counter to the standard narrative that Muslims offer about how their religion got started, uh, and with good reason. There's none of the evidence supports their assertions, none of the archaeological evidence, the numismatic evidence, the textual evidence, the scriptural evidence, the, um, the, the, you know, any of the evidence, none of it supports what they're saying. And more and more evidence keeps coming up saying this man, Muhammad, quote unquote, you know, the prophet of Islam didn't exist. He is in fact a composite of this guy, Yas ibn Kabisa al-Tayaya, whatever his name is. I mean, I, it's, you, know, you can go watch the videos on Fanda Films. Um, you can go watch uh, Mel's uh, videos on Sneakers Corner. And I'll link to all of that stuff in, in, in the blog post. And you can see it in the, in the links to the description box. It's all there. Go watch it. It's fascinating viewing. It's really just phenomenally interesting. But what you're looking at is the Quranic Muhammad is a composite of this guy with the title of Muhammad. Uh, that was his name. Uh, the, the name Muhammad as a name for a person didn't exist in Arabic until much later. This is a man with a title that is Muhammad. You know, and that title gets conflated with uh, Muhammadna, uh, which is paraclete, or which is to say blessed one. It translates to paraclete in Greek. And uh, that, is, that means blessed one. Um, in Syriac, it translates the Syriac version is Muhammadna, the Greek version is Paraclete. So all of this gets blended together by combining the character of Iyas ibn Kabisa uh, or Kabsha, um, a real-life historical warlord, um, with Joshua of Nun from, uh, from the Old Testament, uh, Parts of Moses's biography are incorporated, grafted onto Muhammad. Jesus is heavily conflated with Muhammad. Uh, it's like four different historical and biblical figures all combined, mashed together into this one person who is the uh, canonical figure of Muhammad. But you know, none of the evidence supports that the existence of such a man doesn't exist. He didn't exist. Uh, and the Quran, of course, is riven with massive problems. I mean, top to bottom, it's utterly unsupportable. And of late, back in June, well, actually, let me back up further, back in May, actually, uh, Dr. Shabir Ali, who is uh, a very genial man, I mean, he's a really decent guy, he's, uh, he's a very charming, uh, well-spoken uh, chap who lives in Canada, and he is, uh, he's originally from, I think, uh, India, I think. Uh, he may be from Pakistan, but I think he's from India. Don't quote me on that. Uh, he basically uh, came out and finally admitted for the first time in about, well, in his entire life, that the Quran exists in multiple versions. And this was shocking. I mean, Muslims have maintained for not that long, actually. People think it's 1,400 years. It's not 1,400 years. 1,200 years, not 1,200 years. 1,000 years, not 1,000 years. 500 years not 500 years, 100 years, around about 100 years, that the Qur'an is unchanged, that every single thing you see in the modern Qur'an is exactly the same as the Qur'an that was compiled by Uthman in 652 AD, and that that Uthmanic recension is the same as what was revealed to Muhammad. It's all nonsense. It's all 100% unfiltered nonsense. In the first place, 
the Islamic traditions themselves don't support this narrative. Um, the original Quran, as revealed supposedly to Muhammad, was written down on bits of palm leaf and papyrus and pieces of bone and stone, um, and it was kept in memory by people. Then, after Muhammad died, uh, um, one of his one of his rightly guided caliphs, uh, Abu Bakr, came along and said, "We need to preserve this." Uh, he went to Muhammad's secretary Zaid ibn Tabit because he could see that there were lots and lots of different conflicting versions of the Quran going around. He went to Muhammad's secretary and said, "Compile one Quran." Zaid ibn Tabit said, "No, I can't do that. The Prophet himself didn't ask me to do this." Uh, Abu Bakr says, "Just do it." You know. Uh, so Zaid ibn Tabit compiles a Quran in uh, about 632 AD, 634 AD, something like that, and puts it under the bed of Hafsa, who is one of Muhammad's wives. Um, now, why would you put, you know, the, the greatest revelation of God's holy word ever seen in human history under a bed? It, may, it makes no sense. Why would you do that? But that's what they did. That's what the tra traditions say. I mean, it's laughable, but that's what they say. Then, 20 years later, um, after, uh, you know, after, uh, uh, because it, w the reason why Abu Bakr compiled it is because there was a big battle and like 70 people who memorized the Quran were killed in that battle and they, they really were, they were realizing there was a huge crisis. They, they needed to compile everything and have it in written form. Uh, 20 years later, you know, uh, there's a big battle up in Azerbaijan. Uh, people from northern Arab-speaking countries like Iraq and Syria go up to fight, along with people from southern Arabia and the Hejaz region, they go up to fight. They fight against the Azerbaijanis, they go to a mosque to pray, they come to blows with each other because the Hejaz region people hear the Quran being recited differently from the Levantine Arabs and the Iraqi Arabs, and they're like, what the hell is going on? You can't do this. So, um, so uh, what's his name? I forget, I forget the name of the exact guy. But he comes down, uh, he comes back down to meet with Uthman, the caliph. And he says, we've got a huge problem, dude. Uh, our people are, are coming to blows because they can't recite the Quran correctly. So Uthman goes to Zaid ibn Tabit again. He's 20 years later and he says, take out that Quran that you put under Hafsa's bed. Work with these three other people. Put together a true, authentic Quran. And that's going to be the Quran going forward. And he burned all the other copies of the Quran. Now, that's the standard story, and supposedly ever since then the Qur'an has remained inviolate and preserved and protected, and there are Muslims today who would make the claim that, well, most Muslims would say, not one word, not, not one phrase, well, okay, even further back than that, not one chapter, not one verse, not one phrase, not one word, not one letter has ever changed since the Uthmanic recension. Can you see a problem with that? Can you see the problem with their own traditions telling us that, in fact, stuff has changed? Their own traditions tell us that verses were lost. Entire chapters of the Quran were lost. Chapters were eaten by a goat or a sheep or something. There was one very, very dedicated follower of Muhammad who would recite the Quran in a completely different way. There was like one big chapter that he would recite completely differently from everyone else. And no one could persuade him that it was otherwise. And they just left him alone. They didn't kill him. They just left him alone. That's in the that's in Sahih Bukhari. That's in the, the Hadith. 
this is part of their oral traditions. This is part of their overall tradition. This is what they believe. And if a Muslim is going to be honest and say, I believe that the Quran is preserved and inviolate, he's going to have to go back and look at his traditions and realize, oh, no, it wasn't, even in the traditions. And the traditions themselves are unreliable. Now you go to the actual textual evidence and you realize the manuscript evidence puts to the lie that entire story. Um, Arabic as a script back in the 7th century was not capable of dealing with Arabic as a language. The Arabic script is derived from the Nabataean script and actually has to be modified significantly in order to accommodate the realities of the Arabic language. It cannot the, the, the original skeletal script of Arabic could not handle it, which is why it, is, it was known and is known today that early 7th century script is known as script, uh, uh, what is it, scriptura or script, uh, scriptus defectivus or something like, something like that, scriptura defectiva, something like that. Um, there's a video by Nabil Qureshi speaking at Biola University which talks about this. Uh, it could not accommodate that. So the, the skeletal texts as found in the six major manuscripts, the Petropolitanus, the, uh, the Topkapi, the Sana manuscript, the, uh, the Samarkand, and uh, there are two others which I, I forget the name exactly. The, there's one I think in... Um, there's one from Baghdad and uh, another one from somewhere else. Anyway, um, basically there are six major manuscripts and none of them match the current Quran in existence today. That Quran is the Hafs compilation. Hafs was a transmitter of the Quran who died in the 9th century. Like, it's way too far removed from the 7th century. And Hafs was considered to be one of the worst examples of a reciter and a transmitter of the Quran by the people responsible for figuring out which of these dozens of Qurans that existed at the time were to be used. So why is Hafs supposedly the worst out of the bunch used by like 90% of Muslims today? The reason it's used by 90% of Muslims today is because it was common in the Ottoman Empire. That was the text used by the Ottomans. That was the text that became sort of ratified by uh, Al-Azhar University in 1924. It's the Kyrene compilation of the Quran. That was the text that became the gold standard for Muslims in 1984, uh, thanks to King, or maybe not 1984, but in the 1980s, in the mid, in the mid 80s, by yeah, I think it was 84, by uh, King Fahd of Saudi Arabia. Under no circumstances can you argue, then, based on the actual evidence, based on the real data that the Qur'an is preserved and inviolate, because it's not. And of late, two eminent Muslim scholars have come out and actually admitted this, and they've received so much pushback for it. Uh, Shabir Ali uh, admitted that there are multiple versions of the Qur'an. Now, he's very careful to say, it's just recitations, it's just kiraat and akhruf. And for people who don't know the difference, I mean, it's complicated to explain, but basically... And Akhruf is a, uh, a dialectical difference, uh, which is to say that the vowelizations and the dottings and the diacritical markings uh, of the Arabic are different. And there are like seven different versions of that. And then there became ten versions, and eventually there were like another twenty additional recitations, kiraat, that, uh, that uh, spread throughout the, the, the Muslim world. So the question is, which of these recitations are we supposed to use? Because 
actually, it's you know, Shabir Ali continues to claim that it doesn't really change any of the doctrine. Um, yeah, it does. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of changes, and they are doctrinal changes, many of them. Not all of them. Many of them are doctrinal changes. There are like 93 plus thousand changes, differences between these the Hafs text and these 26 other, 25 other Qur'ans that Hatun Tash and her team are investigating over in London. And that, that's 26 Qur'ans combined. There are now 37 Qur'ans which these people have found and are unpacking and, and unraveling. That's, that's astonishing. And many of them are liturgical differences. These are scriptural differences. These are differences of theology and dogma and doctrine. Muslims can't make that claim anymore. Their book has been wiped out from under them. And even that isn't even all that damaging. The Kira'at and the Ahruf are not that damaging compared to the Rasm, the skeletal text, meaning the manuscript text. If you compare what's in the manuscripts without all the dottings and the vowelizations, and you look at the fact that it's all been corrected afterwards. I mean, the Sana'a manuscript has significant corrections. The Sana'a palimpsest uh, has one layer that was wiped clean, and another layer that was added on top. And they, the, the layer added on top has massive corrections. The layer on the bottom uh, shows huge differences between, there, there are huge differences between the layer on the top and the layer on the bottom. And once you realize that all of this evidence is stacking up, you're going to realize very quickly that Muslims have nothing to stand on. And that means that 1.4, 1.6, 1.8 billion, however many Muslims are out there right now, are worshipping a false gospel, which means that they are going to have a severe crisis of faith. We've never had anything like this emerge in the last thousand years. Nothing like this has happened between Islam and the rest of us for a thousand years. We've never seen anything like this. It's an incredibly exciting time to be alive. And the reason it's exciting is because now Islam suddenly has to grapple with the same crises that Christianity had to grapple with a thousand or fifteen hundred years ago. Even, you know, at the beginning of the twentieth century, when Christianity came under severe attack, uh, archaeological, liturgical, scriptural, textual criticism, saying, you cannot support these assertions you're making in the Bible. And it turns out we could, because the more we look, the deeper we look, the more the Bible story became clear as history, as living history. We have passed those tests. We've subjected ourselves to them, and other religions should subject, subject themselves to the same tests. I want to see Hindus subject themselves to the same tests for the Upanishads, for the Vedas, for the Bhagavad Gita. I want to see uh, Zoroastrians subject themselves to the same tests. The Viking uh, pagan religion is dead and gone, but you can subject the uh, poetic and prose Eddas to the same tests. Of course, they fail. Uh, you can subject any belief system to these same tests. Is it true? That's the basis of everything we should be doing. Is it true? That's the one question we should be asking. The only text that has ever surpassed all of that, and I'm going to bring this up shortly about the Communist Party of China as well. The question is, is it true? If it's true, then we can accept it. If there's evidence supporting it, we can accept it. If there's evidence saying that this is right and good and proper, we can accept it. But if, it, if, it's, if the evidence says no, throw it out. 
And what Muslims are going to have to realize is that their entire worldview is based on lies. And that's very sad for them. I do feel sorry for them. I genuinely, I feel very, very sorry for them that their entire way of looking at the world has been wrecked. It's been, it's, it's literally been shot out from under them. They've got nothing to stand on. But God bless them because they have everything we have in terms of, you know, a belief system. I mean, it's, it's a flawed belief system. But they have the basics. They believe in divine intervention. They believe in a monotheistic God. They believe in uh, a God who is many, actually. They, don't, they, they refuse to admit it. They think that's heresy, but it's true. Uh, in, in, uh, in the Quran, it constantly says, we have done this and we have done that. Well, okay, that's a, a multi-part God. Um, and while I am skeptical about the dogma, dogma of the Trinity, um, I, you know, I, don't, I just don't concern myself that much with it because I do not worship a Trinity. I worship Jesus Christ. So, at any rate, uh, they believe in heaven and hell. They believe in doing good works for penitence. They believe in miracles. They believe in divine intercession. They believe in Jesus. They don't call him Jesus. They have a completely wrong picture of Jesus, but they believe in Jesus. So they have everything that they need. They just need to come on home. Think about that. Think about the reasons for optimism. We now have a chance for 1.5 plus billion souls to be saved. It's not going to happen at once. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be bloody and brutal and horrible while they grapple with this existential crisis that has happened in their faith. Um, both uh, Shabir Ali and uh, Yasir Qadi uh, have tried very hard to walk back their comments, or at least uh, pretend that they didn't happen, but they happened. Yasser Qadi is on video admitting that the Kiraat and the Akhruf are a problem for Muslims, and that the standard narrative of Islam has holes in it. He actually admitted that on camera. Uh, he, he tried desperately to cover up some of these holes and refused to admit some of the problems with the, the narrative. He just said that they exist. What an admission. What a thing to say. He admitted that these problems exist. So there's reason for hope, my friends. There's reason for optimism. There's reason to believe that we will be able to see billions of people around the world saved from a very, very terrible fate, from being cut off entirely from God, the Creator, from the, the, the Supreme Judge of the Universe. And that brings me to the Communist Party of China which is also itself built and based on lies. Uh, the communists, I mean, communism in general is satanic. There's, there's no doubt in my mind about that. It is straight from Satan's butthole. Um, everything about communism is evil. It is utterly unsupportable as an economic system. Uh, that's been proven since basically 1922 in um, uh, a paper called uh, Economic Calculation in the Socialist Commun Commonwealth by uh, Ludwig von Mises, of course. And um, the entire economic basis of communism was always garbage. Uh, Karl Marx spent years researching in the British Library, uh, trying to find evidence for his theory that labor is the sole determinant of value, and trying to find data that would support his idea. He couldn't. He couldn't find it because it didn't exist. Um, all of the data pointed to the view that uh, 
free enterprise system, a capitalist system, allocated goods and services far more accurately and uh, appropriately than any labor theory of value ever could. So he tortured the data. He twisted it. He used outdated reports. He twisted and manipulated the data to support his theory. His, his was a, uh, a theory in search of facts. And he found the facts and then he changed them to fit his theory. Uh, communists, communism has always claimed, like Islam, to be a philosophy of peace, a governing order that would lead to world peace. And instead it led to a hundred million dead people around the world. Now communists have tried to deny this for years. But then a book was released called The Black Book of Communism. Uh, it's sitting in storage. Uh, it's in my storage unit somewhere. And it's one of my most prized possessions. I bought it uh, a while back. I've never read it. Um, I, I plan to go through it at some point. But uh, it is a searing indictment of the evil of communism. Now, the Soviet Union is long gone. Communism as a, an economic philosophy is discredited and dead. But the Communist Party of China lives on. And it inflicts routine evil upon its people on a daily basis. It is, it is a a genuinely evil organization and uh, its entire existence is based on lies. I mean, the Communist Party would like you to believe that it has a glorious history reaching back to the days of Japanese occupation of China, uh, of Manchuria and much of northern China. And that's simply not true. The Chinese People's Liberation Army was actually resoundingly defeated in battle when it went up against the Japanese, repeatedly. Uh, the, the, the PLA was never an effective fighting force. It was a reasonably effective guerrilla force, but not very. I mean, guerrilla tactics didn't really work against an enemy that was quite happy to raise cities and villages to the ground uh, and had no problem um, slaughtering millions of people. And the Japanese didn't have a problem with that back in World War II. They have a huge problem with that now. I mean, they've obviously changed a great deal. Back then, it wasn't an issue for them. Uh, what really happened is that the Kuomintang under Chiang Kai-shek uh, fought the Japanese and bled themselves dry doing it. And of course, the, the KMT were quite corrupt as well. And that's also well known. They had many issues with corruption, um, bribery and nepotism within the ranks. They were demoralized. They were weak. They were, uh, they were battle-weary. Um, after the, the brutal slugfest between themselves and the Japanese. And they wore themselves out. The Chinese offered, a tr uh, the, the, the CCP offered a truce to the KMT and said, we're not going to fight you. They turned around and broke that truce, went ahead and kicked the KMT out, slaughtered uh, thousands upon thousands of Kuomintang supporters, and ever since 1949 have laid claim to... Uh, Taiwan, which is an autonomous independent island. Um, they proceeded under Mao Zedong to slaughter millions, tens of millions of their own people. The, the greatly backward and the cultural devolution uh, was, you know, they're, they're upheld as, like, uh, at least in some parts of China, not all, uh, and some parts of the Communist Party, not all as these glorious moments in Chinese history, they were appalling. I mean, Deng, Deng Xiaoping, um, you know, eventually admitted that it, they were huge mistakes. And, I mean, rightly so. He suffered very greatly under them. But uh, 
<clears throat> China today is ruled by a an a rapacious, avaricious elite that is no different from the Western elites um, that are out to secure as much money and power as they possibly can and to hell with the ordinary people. China, the, the CCP would have you believe that China is a rich and powerful and uh, terrifying country. It's not. It's a wounded dragon, as I pointed out in my podcast, Paper Tiger, Wounded Dragon, uh, from some time ago. China is not a hyperpower. It's not even a superpower, not yet. <clears throat> it is not capable of enforcing its military dominance upon anybody right now. The Chinese Communist Party is, in fact, a... Uh, is not a monolithic organization, but is, in fact, riven from top to bottom with corruption and jealousy. There are multiple factions fighting for survival. One is led by the current Supreme Leader, uh, Xi Jinping. The other is led by the faction that used to be under the control of former Premier Jiang Zemin. And they're locked in a struggle to the death. Uh, whoever wins, the other side is going to lose very, very, very badly. The CCP is a lie founded on top of lies, uh, preaching lies, telling lies, and paranoid, terrified of the truth. Ultimately, that truth is going to come and blow them apart. Now, I'm not saying that China is going to become a bastion of freedom and democracy and all things good and Western. That's nonsense, okay? I don't believe that for a moment. I believe that China will remain China. And in fact, if you look at China's composition right now, China is not one country. It's at least seven different countries glued together, held together by the threat of force under a Han-dominated empire. That's what the CCP is. It's a Han-dominated Chinese empire. There are actually seven different nations within the geographic territory of China. You have the Manchus to the north, the Manchurians, the Mongols in the northern center, the Han to the southwest and uh, east, uh, excuse me, sorry, the Han to the southeast and the east, uh, the Cantonese to the south, the, uh, the Uyghurs and the um, basically the people of uh, Xinjiang province to the west, the Tibetans to the southwest, and the Tibetans are a, a very large ethnic minority. And uh, there's a couple, was that, uh, one, two, three, four, five, uh, six, I think, and there's one other which I forget, one or two others which I forget what they're called, but these are significant ethnic minorities. Oh, actually, not even minorities, they're, these are significant, huge populations of you know, non-Han peoples uh, throughout China. And the time will come when the CCP can no longer maintain its grip on power because it is no longer competent enough to do so. It is no longer capable enough to do so. The Soviet Union fell for two reasons. Number one, it was bankrupted by its misadventures in Afghanistan, uh, which the God Emperor pointed out um, very clearly, you know, his his most illustrious, noble, august, benevolent, and legendary celestial majesty, the God Emperor of Mankind, Donaldus Triumphus Magnus Astra, the first of his name, the Lion of Midnight, may the Lord bless him and preserve him. He pointed this out very recently. He pointed out that uh, the Russians went into Afghanistan to stop Islamic terrorists from coming into their territory in the Soviet Union and infiltrating their territory and attacking them. Um, and they bled themselves dry doing it. And the second reason was, of course, Star Wars. 
uh, the Strategic Defense Initiative. The Russians could not figure out how to combat it. They, they were squeezed dry on four different fronts by the Reagan administration, which is one of the reasons why I consider St. Reagan Magnus of the Right to be the greatest president of the 20th century. I consider Donaldus Triumphus to be the greatest president the U.S. has had since Andrew Jackson. He's even better than Reagan was. That should give you a measure of how much I think, how highly I think of Donald Trump, uh, which is not surprising. Obviously, anybody who listens to my work or reads my work knows this. The reason Reagan succeeded was because he mounted a four-front economic or four-front war against the Soviets, an economic war in which he squeezed the Soviets dry uh, by cutting off their oil and gas reserves, a political war in which he isolated the Soviet Union, a military war in which he escalated the confrontation with the Soviets in every theater around the world, and a technology war uh, in which he made the Soviets desperately struggle to catch up to them. And he realized that the Russian economy had, was about the size of California's in the Soviet Union, like the entire Warsaw Pact could be outproduced by the whole of the USA. Just the USA could outproduce the whole of the Warsaw Pact. And the same situation exists today. China is not strong. It has 800 million people living in poverty. It is uniquely vulnerable because of its over-reliance on manufacturing and trade. The God Emperor can win a trade war against China. He will lose a military war, and I think he understands this, which is why he's been very, very hesitant to deploy anything other than you know shows of force against the Chinese. But the God Emperor can win this war. And when, not if, but when the CCP finally shatters and breaks apart, you're going to see over a billion people, a billion and a half people, 1.5 billion people, finally realizing that they're living under a lie and finally trying to turn towards the truth. That is a glorious vision of the future. Think about that, brothers. Think about this. Something like two and a half billion people, because there's obviously some overlap between, you know, Muslims in China and Chinese people and Muslims around the world. Um, anywhere from two and a half to three billion people are going to see that they've been led by lies and they're going to turn to the truth. And where is the truth? Where is the truth? The truth is the word. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he said. No one shall know the Father except through me, he said. The truth is Logos. The truth is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The truth is God the Father of Jesus. And we have a chance to see three billion people turn to the truth in our lifetimes. Watch and wait, brothers. You're going to see it. You're going to see these lies shattered and destroyed, and you're going to see billions of souls getting saved. If that's not reason for hope and optimism, I don't know what is. God bless you, my friends. Um, it is coming up on the one-hour mark, and I don't like to run late on these things. As always, uh, please like, share, comment, and subscribe. Uh, please ensure that you um, uh, subscribe to the blog. I, I will get the blog fixed sometime soon. I will add subscription features and email list features and all the good stuff. Please make sure you uh, uh, stop by Superb Shaving and uh, pick up some cool stuff. You'll help support me and my work. And uh, as always, peace be with you, my brothers. And may the blessings of our beloved and mighty Father in heaven be with you. 
this has been Didactic Mind, episode 48, One Little Victory. I am Didact, signing off.